Coming up next, the booking continues to make friends by discussing C.S. Lewis. It's part two. How to win friends and influence people. Yeah. Right. everybody, welcome to The Bookening. This is Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host, joining you for the second in a series of, I'm going to say at least nine, because we're not going to get to the books this time, but probably we will next time. We'll start with Lion, the Witch, and so on next probably. time. The Dare Say the Wardrobe. You just really depressed me, because you said right before we started, we're doing three episodes, and mm-hmm. you said we're not getting to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and my mind process. Like a three, we're going to do three episodes, just like... <laughs> before we get to... C.S. Uh, Lewis integrated paganism. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh man, do we really have no, to No, 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 we don't have three episodes. Just as a, the next episode that we're going to record in like an hour and a half... Will be the Lion, we'll the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, the and this episode is not going to just be... No. It's going to be more... C.S. Lewis lovers. Yeah. Well, let me introduce this first. I, of course, the Lord of Validation, as everyone likes to call me, Nathan Albertson, your humble and obedient host. We've got Brandon Chastain over there. Hey. The scholar who's a baller of reading, Ghost Brandon. Ooh. And, of course, I need, like, a Funky Town beat for... Boom. We got the Beastmaster Funky Town. Yeah. It's Pastor Jake Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading. <laughs> How we doing, Jake? Fine. I'm glad to hear it. All right, guys. Let's do it. Let's talk about this. Yeah. I wanted to start today, and, yeah. and we're not actually going to spend this whole episode just going, because we did a lot of that last episode. But you're probably going to think that's what we're doing, because we keep saying we're going to not say, C.S. Lewis. Right, yeah. yeah. We thinks we do, pro- we death, we death protest too much. <laughs> 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 no, no, no. We are going to talk, a- we're gonna- I, I want to do a little cleanup, and so I do want to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Well, okay, what's the best way to approach this? So... So last week, we, we always like to bring this up with C.S. Lewis because we think it's important. C.S. Lewis has this quote from Surprised by Joy mm-hmm. where, what, is he, what does he say? Do you want me to read the quote? Sure. Well, for one, and this is something that's throughout his, uh, all his writing because it comes up in Mere Christianity too, where he just doesn't want to speak. He, he has his reticence and hesitance, whatever, however you want to call it, to speak on sins that he says he doesn't suffer from. Mm-hmm. So he starts the chapter out by saying, let me just set this up a little bit more. We are going to get to baggage here in a minute, yeah. folks. And so I think if you're waiting for us to say some really nice, positive things about C.S. Lewis, I, I at least plan to say many of them in baggage because C.S. Lewis is important for me. I really like him. Yeah. And he's been very important for me. Yeah. I just want to make a little space to talk about what's bad about him, I guess. So and there's plenty. That's, there's plenty that's bad about a lot of the authors that we like. Yeah. So. Here's the quote. So this is Light and Shade. This is when he was off to one of the boarding schools, one of the public boarding schools, the most important one that he would be at. Mm -hmm. And um, Wyvern, you want me to read the opening paragraph too? Sure. This is the chapter Light and Shade, chapter seven. He said, here's a fellow you say, he used to come before us as a moral and religious writer. And now, if you please, he's written a whole chapter describing his old school as a very furnace of impure loves without one word on the heinousness of the sin. So the chapter before this is where he talks about, um, what does he call the boys? I can't remember. The bloods? Yeah, the bloods. But then you had, the word I'm wanting to say is not the right word. 
They were called the tarts. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's what he says. <laughs> and so he's been talking of the heinousness of this. He hasn't talked about it at all. He's just mentioned that it happened. And he says there are two reasons he hasn't talked about the heinousness of it. One, you shall hear before this chapter ends. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to read in just a minute. Right. The other, that makes it worse, actually. This makes it worse. The other is that, as I have said, the sin in question is one of the two. Gambling is the other, which I have never been tempted to commit. I will not indulge in futile philippics against enemies I never met in battle. So one thing I have with, one thing I've noticed reading, so I've read a lot of Lewis again in mm-hmm. preparation for this because I knew people would take issue with what we're saying. So I've read a lot of his works, reread them. And one thing I noticed in Mere Christianity and Weight of Glory and um, God of the Docks, a lot of these things where he's defending Christianity is he can be very soft mm-hmm. when it comes to actual sin. He admits that there is a thing, such a thing as sin, but then very soft when it comes to actually dealing with it. And, mm-hmm. and you see that here. So it's a problem. Mm-hmm. So here's the other reason. So the one is he doesn't suffer from this sin. The other, and this is his defense of this sin mm-hmm. and why he hasn't spoken about the heinousness of it. So if you're a discerning reader, what you then, the way you're supposed to view this, the tone of this is this is his defense as to why this sin is not as heinous as people typically think it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as long as we're on the same page, he's defending the non-heinousness of a fairly vile sin. Mm -hmm. So here we go. If those of us who have known a school like Wyvern dared to speak the truth, we should have to say that pederasty, however great and evil in itself, was in that time and place the only foothold or cranny left for certain good things. Yikes. Mm -hmm. It's a bad start. It was the only counterpoise to the social struggle, the one oasis, though green only with weeds and moist only with fetid water, and the burning desert of competitive ambition— In his unnatural love affairs, and perhaps only there, the blood went a little out of himself. Forgot for a few hours that he was one of the most important people there are. It softens the picture. A perversion was the only chink left through which something spontaneous and uncalculating could creep in. Plato was right after all. Eros, turned upside down, blackened, distorted, and filthy, still bore the traces of his divinity. And I'm wondering why Harvey Weinstein's lawyers haven't gotten a hold of this passage yet. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I was going to say is you put the that exact quote in the mouth of literally anyone not named C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Put that quote in the mouth of Harvey Weinstein. That's exactly who I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody is through the roof We'd be flipping out. It. They'd be flipping yeah. out yeah. about it. And it, it, people wanting to defend it and say, you know, oh, you know, well, he's just a good Augustinian who understands that all sin is just a perversion of something good. I just want to start talking about the violence of the action in the most explicit terms I possibly can, which we can't do on this show. But I want to make people sit and imagine little boys being forced to do horrible, horrifying things. Yeah. And then read the quote again and make them read the quote out loud and then make them repeat back to me what he's talking about explicitly. Yeah. And talking about having the touch of the divine or divinity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, people, you can't excuse that. I don't care who you are. Yeah, it's inexcusable. And I think one, maybe pederasty meant something back then. Maybe these are people who who don't have any children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who don't have any little boys. Maybe that's how you excuse something like that, is you just aren't a father or you are given to that sin. So, so this is the argument that I've heard people make for this passage. It's it's the the place where I I've actually seen Lewis articulate this the most clear is in the preface to most clearly is in the preface to Screw Tape Letters, where he talks about how the devil is not the perfect opposite 
of God. The devil is not perfectly evil in the way that God is perfectly good. The devil is a perversion because the devil has many. He's a derivative. He has many good qualities such as existence, such as intelligence that are basically in and of themselves good things. And so all, if, if you follow that argument, you can see how you get to even something like pederasty is a perversion of something good. And that's that's basically true. That's basically true. The, the, the Satan Except has it's not. So, sorry, go ahead. I mean, that's, well, what, that's the point he makes in mere Christianity. Is that's makes, what sin is: is and, a perversion of a good drive. And he makes it's it. A bad, it's an impulse put to a bad use. And I, as I recall, it's somewhat helpful in the way that he talks about yeah. it in mere Christianity. As a younger Christian, when I read that book, it's been a long time. But it's uh, a. Yeah, you can go through the Ten Commandments, and you can do this: the desire to worship. You shall have no other gods but me. There's mm-hmm. a desire to worship. And you're going to worship the true God or you're going to worship false gods. Right. Sin is a perversion of the worship of the one true God. You go through every single thing down that list. Do not commit adultery. Well, there's sex and marriage. Right. Be fruitful and multiply. And then there's adultery and every perversion downstream of that. There's there's don't steal. That's provision. That's... Yeah. There's all kinds of ways that you can take that angle, that view of looking at sin and understand sin. And there's a... It There's could be helpful, helpful to think about, about that. that. I like in Screwtape when Screwtape and the other devil are talking about how the, say they've never created a pleasure. Their engineers have been working on it, but actually all their pleasures are derivatives and fakes. And so there's interesting points that C.S. Lewis and I think helpful points that he makes with this same, same thematic material, but it's disturbing when... He takes it to this extreme. I mean, I don't know. What do well, you want, I mean, what do you want to say to that argument? That's all he's getting at. He's not saying. Yeah. He, what, well, he himself said it fetid water. He said it's bad. See, if you C.S. Lewis is yes or no, Brandon C.S. Lewis thought that this was a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, he says it's. I think the better. Let's be as objective as possible. C.S. Lewis said it was a bad. He said it was a bad thing. Yeah. He yes. says it's a bad thing. He says it's green only with weeds and moist only with fetid water. So these are bad things. These are bad things, and yet. And yet he wants to make space for the idea that there was something, some transcendent. That's what he's arguing. Well, yeah. a trace of the divine. So yeah. what does that mean to and say well, that there's a trace of the divine? Well, one thing to start with would be this word pederasty, mm-hmm. because maybe it meant something very particular back then and it would have disturbed people. Now it sounds clinical. It, uh, I, people probably don't even know what it means. Right. And so you want to replace it with what he's really talking about, which is boyhood molestation mm-hmm. or rape. pederasty is when you have an older entity who takes on a subordinate and begins to systematically groom and rape that person yeah as a function of their dominant relationship to them it was very common in ancient greece and in ancient cultures for tutors and instructors to be raping their pupils it was expected and yeah. and boys went through a phase where they were raped by superiors to yeah. them, mm-hmm. and then they turned around, and then they raped little boys too, mm-hmm. and that's what this is talking about. Yeah, and so here Lewis is, and start, remember how he starts this chapter. He says he doesn't want to talk about the heinousness of the sin. Mm-hmm. So instead, what he does is he ends up finding space to defend it, right? Because he says here, in his unnatural love affairs, and perhaps only there, the blood who he because Lewis has a big beef with the social hierarchies mm-hmm. that were at Wyvern. He hates that. That's like the thing that he hates more than anything. And um, you see that. that and make plays... no mistake, pederasty is how you establish yeah. and maintain 
the hierarchy. Right. Yeah. It's the key. It's the key. Instead, mm-hmm. what he sees here is that in like a weird, it's a very academic turn mm-hmm. to look at it this way. He's saying that in pederasty, where you would expect it, that thing that he hates to be at, on display the strongest, if he really hates that hierarchical, because yep. that's a thing he hates. We saw it in that hideous strength. Right. That's what, is it Mark? Mm-hmm. That's what he finds when he goes to Oxford. And that, so he shares in that hatred that Lewis has of that sort of inner circle clubbing. Well, and if we want to do Lewis full justice, I would say his hatred of pride and the kind of arrogance that comes with academic achievement and that comes with a certain kind of social standing is one of the most, maybe this is, this will sound like I'm belittling him, but I think it's charming fact of C.S. Lewis. Like he hates stuffy schoolmasters. He hates yeah. all the parts of Narnia where he's he's like, in Narnia, you wear clothes that fit well, not clothes that are constricted. Itchy, itchy and stupid. Yeah. Like, that make no that sense. College, like, he, yeah. like yeah. he's like, yeah. And his section, you know, I don't like his theology. I hate his theology of hell mm-hmm. and of, you know, the way a lot of the way he understands sin is just bad. But his basic conception of sin as being self-absorption is helpful to a degree, as long as you don't turn it into Absolutely. the bedrock of your entire theology. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a helpful way to think about it. So that's, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing out as many good things as I can say yeah, about because, this awful passage. Because then he says, though, it's there and only there that the blood forgets for a few hours that he was one of the most. So it's like, this is a good, valuable thing for the blood. This horrible It's activity. a moment of transcendence. It's the yeah. only opportunity he has. The only opportunity he has for yeah. a moment of transcendence is when he's raping his subordinate. Yeah. And so the, the critics want to say that this is an Augustinian moment. Right. That he's borrowing from August. And yet, if I remember- the critics my, of- our point of view. Yeah, and yet if I remember my City of God right, Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis does not defend what was going on in the Roman- Augustine, yeah, sorry. Does not defend what was going on in the Roman bathhouses or try to defend the Socratic gymnasiums between the philosophers and little boys. Of course not, yeah. And so there's something twisted about what's happening here. And it is telling that at a point where he could actually address this as sin. Right. Biblically. Mm Mm-hmm. Instead, he turns to where he always turns in these moments. He turns to Plato and the Greek or Roman gods. Mm -hmm. And this is what we'll see over and over again with him. He tries to humanize one of the most vile and perverse things that people do to each other. Well, and also, okay, so step one to- Sodomitic rape. That's what we're talking about. He tries to humanize it. Of young people. Of boys. Of little boys. Of of minors. Um, so the first thing to point out is that this is an abomination he's talking about. It's just simply wicked, and that's what we've been doing. The second thing to point out is that his argument is stupid, right? Mm-hmm. Like yep. he, the the blood is there is no that that trace does not exist. The blood is not actually getting out of himself. He's not he's not doing what C.S. Lewis says he's doing when he commits a degraded act. Just like people, no, that, it's all about himself. I mean, all it, of it is. Yeah. It's entirely self-absorbed if a man commits and adultery against it doesn't his wife mean that there's not all right we're talking about rape here right mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a moment of euphoria but Good. there's nothing truly transcendent about that it's entirely no. selfish and self-absorbed unless you want to stick poetic metaphors on it that don't really go there mm-hmm. which is what lewis does and then he hides behind and he does this quite a bit and sometimes it's very useful and sometimes it's not so useful such as here right where he'll come up with his metaphor that seems to... So he has that, the one in Weight of Glory about the indecent secret that he's mm-hmm. telling about how heaven actually is a reward of joy or whatever that he's getting at with Weight of Glory. Right. Remember this? Yeah. 
And something similar is going on here. He gets so caught up in his metaphor that the pleasure of it makes him think it's okay. Yeah. What also strikes me, maybe this is a side point, I don't know, but it seems to me that completely in 100% self, self-consistent, self-consistent theology to me is almost ba- always bad theology. Yeah. What I love about reading the Institutes by John Calvin is that there's a, a number of places where Calvin's like, that's a mystery. And how dare you ask God about that? <laughs> yeah. You'd never understand that. <laughs> and Calvin says that again and again and again. And C.S. Lewis was never accepting of those kinds of mysteries. He always wanted no, he to wanted work to it all out. Dive, it, mm-hmm. dive down into it. Those are the places where he wants to dive down, like a, like the medieval scholastics, which he admires. Right. Yeah. And so you get to these mad, crazy conclusions where C.S. Lewis has all these helpful thoughts, but then he takes them to their logical conclusion, and it's dis- disgusting. Yeah. And it's like, if he was just willing to not idolize his brain, if he was willing to allow things to not be as consistent. I mean, it really is as simple as, hey, look, there is no, I mean, we can do this right now. Here's a thought experiment. Right. There is no virtue in a fallen human being that doesn't have some element of vice in it. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we can just do a little thought exercise to the point of there's no vice that doesn't have some element of virtue in it. So- everything is okay, do what you want and celebrate the virtue and everything. Yeah, right. Right? There you go. And we could we could write a really compelling scientific paper, uh, uh, theological- I bet one that Gospel Coalition would take. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We could pitch it to the Gospel Coalition. We could write a really compelling scholarly theological piece yeah. on that and people would love it. Yeah. They mm-hmm. would eat it right up. And it's, it's just garbage. Right. That's not the way the Bible speaks about sin. Mm-hmm. So the Bible calls these kinds of things abomination. The reason I keep using that word is because that's what it calls these kinds of things. That's the word, right? And so if the Bible thinks, speaks of it as a, as a degradation, as a shameful thing, as a wicked thing, as a thing that's supposed to make us feel bad, and then C.S. Lewis is using words like trace of divinity, I don't really care what point he's making. When he's strayed that far from the feeling, when he's yeah. strayed away f- that far from the shame, the exactly. revulsion that's that we're supposed to have, sh- yeah, absolutely, it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Right? No, it's just, it's how you remove shame and revulsion from any sin that there is. And that's how we live in the world that we live in today. Yeah. As you take this kind of approach, C.S. Lewis type of approach to sin, and the next thing you know, there's no shame attached to anything. Right. There's no disgust. There's no ick factor that is natural in man to have when it comes to these types of perversions. Right. It's it's like you'd have to be educated to be that dumb. It's one of those kinds exactly. of things. It's like exactly. if you really well, think about it, you can think your way into thinking that pederasty has a, ter- a trace of the divine. But any idiot would be like, huh? Especially what? In mere Christianity, he has a whole section on the value of shame and how this is a great thing, a great gift that God gives to us, shame. Right. You have to be really educated to be that stupid. Yeah. I mean, I really want somebody to go down to the local dive bar or to the or to a construction site and try to convince people that raping little boys has a touch of the divine about it and see how far you get. Oh, well, see how far you might be able to run. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I do like, not come suggest. on, people, please. <laughs> like, you really have to be, um, you have to be brilliant to be that stupid. Yeah. Right. And you that have to devious. you have to use five dollar words instead of nice handy five cent words in order for it to sound. Okay. And so here's the problem: then you have a bunch of two bit C.S. Lewis poser wannabe knockoffs <laughs> who are really stupid, but who want people to think that they're really smart. Mm-hmm. 
And so they they walk around talking like this because that's that's what they think it is to be smart is to be retarded mm-hmm. and, and and morally retarded. Mm-hmm. And it's like, come on, people, wake up. I also find it interesting. This is another side point to the side point to the side point. But it seems to me that sexuality, in a way, the perversions of it are so shameful that we don't really like to think of them. And perhaps because of that, it's actually easier to allow space for these kinds of things. Like if I tried to argue that, you know, like beating your wife or murdering somebody had the trace of divine, everyone would just be like, uh, okay, whatever. But yeah. somehow there's this allowance that will make for these kinds of things. And I think you're right. I think it's because we don't want to talk and think about it, which is why I said at the top that what I want to do is start getting really graphic. All you have to do is describe in biological detail let's get, what let's we're talking get biological, about biological, let's get scientific, yeah. let's get graphic about what we're actually talking about. And then let's see who wants to stand up and say that has a trace of the divine. Right. Or Trace of Divinity. I keep getting that wrong. Yeah, I like to say Trace of Divine, too. Okay, well, guys, is there anything else we want to say about this? This passage? This, well, or just this whole... I think we're going to talk more as we go through the Narnia books about the ways that C.S. Lewis took his arguments to bad conclusions, the places yeah. where he combined well, peg, old-style paganism. And it is interesting that he was a classical guy and that yeah. this argument, you know, he's making space for the kinds of... for for really old sins, you know, Absolutely. Greco-Roman sins like Jake yeah. was. And I, I want to say, I, I want to say, I don't want to quite, I, I don't know C.S. Lewis, you know, I, I'm not inside his head, but it seems to me that he always wants to make space for sins from 4,000, 3,000, 2,000 years ago. And this is of a piece with that. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you, wa- he wants to, he wants to harmonize paganism with Christianity. Yes. Which is a drive from when he was young, when he got his first taste for Christianity through the Norse gar- gods, Asgard, all mm-hmm. that s- sort of thing. When he saw the northernness and the longing that he got from Fantasties, it does the show longings. some maturity. Say what? The longing that's a wanting. Yeah. The wanting that's a. <laughs> the wanting that's a. Longing that's a having. Yeah. That's and a, he says that. Longing that's a having. But to be fair to Lewis, the people get that out of surprise by joy. Mm-hmm. And that, but that quote comes before his conversion. Yeah. And he's talking about this desire that he had when he was young and how God used that to then save him. And I found it really telling that. Can I read the last paragraph? Please. Yep. The wanton conclusion of joy. For that, after all, is what the story has mainly been about. So a lot of people. Like this guy who wrote that article, I'm assuming, for Christianity Today. And people who want to say Lewis has shaped the way they look at their hedonistic lifestyles of Christianity and all that. They really cling on to this idea of joy that Lewis has. Mm -hmm. And after reading Surprised by Joy, I'm like, well, maybe these people don't know how to read. Because here's what happens. But what a conclusion of joy, for that after all is what the story has mainly been about. It's been the most telling thing in my life, and it's shaped everything since then. And I figured out that God is my longing that's a wanting that's a having. That's what he says? That's no. the phrase. No, no, this no. is what he says. To tell you the truth, the subject has lost nearly all interest for me since I became a Christian. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I cannot. I thought this, I put a, like a, that, that's. Brendan reserved, made a little triangle. That's folks. reserved for like the things I want to remember. Yeah. I cannot indeed complain like Wordsworth that the visionary gleam has passed away. I believe that the old stab, the old bittersweet has come to me as often and as sharply since my conversion as at any time of my life, whatever, but I now know that the experience considered as a state of my own mind has never had the importance I once gave it. That's how Lewis ends this book, by like saying that now all the people who say this is like the defining principle of their life is like, oh, it's whatever. Yeah, get over it. I moved, I moved on. <laughs> so should you. <laughs> That's because fascinating. This is a biography first and foremost. Mm-hmm. He's telling how God used this desire for something to, to save him. I have issues with it. 
Yeah. I think it brought him to some very bad conclusions and places later in life. I think it was a weakness of his. He would always have this desire for this longing that he got from pagan mythology, and that would then color the rest of his thinking. He would never quite get rid of it, and that would be the big problem with Till We Have Faces. It will be the problem, spoiler alerts, with Prince Caspian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be the problem with a lot of the stuff he does, but it's where that Eros stuff is from, I think. Yeah. Is this weakness and softness he has there, but also this softness that he just, just in general has about the, the way he thinks. He can be manly in his thinking, but he can also be have some academic softness. And this, are, are we ready to move on? Yeah. Yep. To Let's wrap up <clears throat> what I was doing with T.S. Eliot. Yes. <laughs> Remember him? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a thing. Oh, let's not forget about the hoax. We had a quick Yeah, we'll go back time. to the hoax, yeah. too. What I was doing with T.S. Eliot is you have two fascinating cases here of people who became converts, who were fairly late in life with, all, with an academic career already started, and they were radical, famous converts. C.S. Lewis, if you read Surprised by Joy and just watch his life, he had nothing to lose. Nothing happened to him because he became a Christian. Right. Right. It was a fairly easy transition for him. He already had J.R. Tolkien. It was actually the thing that it would have been surprising had he not become a Christian, given the friends he had, right? Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, and he was already bent that way with his mythology and stuff like that. You can see why he would become a Christian later in life. Now, you could say that's because God provided for him these friends and these books as he was a child, Then, and I'm sure that's what his defenders would say. But here's the thing, the difference with him and T.S. Eliot. I think a lot of Christians are wary about T.S. Eliot largely just because of his reputation as a modernist poet. Yep. T.S. Eliot, in his later life, he wrote a lot of plays and then he wrote a lot of wonderful cat poems. That's what mm -hmm. he did when he was a Christian. Right. And he became the head editor of Faber and Faber and actually was the one who published A Grief Observed by Lewis. And That's was, interesting. Was, they, had a, they didn't really have a deep friendship, but they respected one another. T.S. Eliot actually had something to lose when he became a convert. Virginia Woolf said, you're dead to us now, right? He was a part of the Bloomsbury group. He was a part of the, the uh, Lost Generation. He was with Ulysses and Mrs. Dalloway. The Wasteland is the fundamental text of modernism. He was the modernist, a modernist god. So when he decided, when God saved him, when he became a Christian, there was a lot at stake for Eliot, and he lost a lot. He mm -hmm. really did. He lost his reputation as someone that was worth listening to. It shaded how they treated the wasteland, all his earlier works. It was it was ruinous for him. And that did shape the sort of, he was a very modest man. There's not a lot you can, and he stopped very similar to Lewis. We don't have a lot of his letters after he becomes a convert, which is interesting. That is interesting. Hmm. Um, I just think that that's a fascinating story. That we have hmm. these two men play side by side. One of them actually did have a lot to lose. Lewis talks a lot about losing in the cross and stuff like that, but T.S. Eliot actually had to do it. Mm -hmm. He actually lived through it because he was humiliated because he became a Christian. And not humiliated in the sense that he was embarrassed, but publicly they humiliated him. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of the softness and stuff that I think Lewis would have been helped by having to have had that sort of thing happen to him, mm -hmm. to actually had stakes to him becoming a Christian. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't just while he was on a bus riding past the Wallabies and he decided, oh, you got me, God, checkmate. Right. Which is kind of how he puts it in Surprise by Joy. I was the most unwilling convert ever in England or at the time. I mean, something along those lines. And it's got this like triacly sweet tea and biscuits, beaver's house quality to his conversion. And I think that a lot of these things like this... Unfortunate passage and surprised by joy. 
a lot of the softness to his thinking, a lot of his willingness to mix his pre-Christian day thinking with his now converted thinking. It really would have been saved had he had to go through that sort of deep humiliation. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there was something at stake for what he was doing. Mm -hmm. That's how how T.S. Eliot ends up fitting. There you go. Hurrah. And speaking of which, I just just decided, Brandon obviously is chomping at the bit to talk about T.S. Eliot, so... The Cats movie. That's that's gonna be our big chance. We go oh, see. I watched that trailer. We go see the trailer. We go, we go see the oh, movie. It's, it it's got so this bad. wonderful fur technology, <laughs> digital, digital fur, fur technology, digital fur technology, DFT, DFT, Ugh. amazing actors, and you got your Taylor Swift and your Edris Elba and singing be... singing a wonderful. And, oh, and did and you James love James Corden? Don't forget. Did you yeah. love in the trailer? You know yeah. how it like the title card comes up and it says something like. Andrew Lloyd Webber and T.S. Eliot's a mortal classic or something like that. I might be using the word abomination as much as you've been using it today, Nathan. <laughs> anyway, we're going to do it. So people have, as long as it's not too sexual, we'll do it, folks. Um, which, is a, which is a legitimate concern with that one, with that property, because there will be a lot of slinky cat people, but we'll see. All right, guys, let's talk about, oh, you got to tie up the hoax, Brandon. What's the hoax? Oh, oh the, you, yeah. We left a cliffhanger last time. This is going to be the most disappointing thing <laughs> people have ever heard. This is like a lost cliffhanger. What's so inside the, the hatch? So nothing. the hoax. Well, the hoax nothing is interesting. interesting. In, What's the in smoke so monster? Person. No, nothing. The person was inside the hatch. What's the island? That's oh, purgatory. One or of the something. best Who characters knows? inside the hatch. Yeah. Desmond was Desmond yeah. in the hatch. Desmond, Desmond was, was in the hatch with a whole bunch of food and stuff. Yeah, the, the, we had the classic episode where Hurley has to decide what to do with the potato chips. That great, great classic of <laughs> modern drama. That was a good episode. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do for with the fat guy character? <laughs> well, I know he'll have to decide the fate of a bunch of potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so the hoax is interesting insofar as. It's fun to realize that authors have a life after they're dead mm-hmm. through their publishing, yep. through their through their works. That have so we're seeing this a lot with, where was I seeing? Oh, Char- Charles Bukowski, who's a horrible poet. People shouldn't go and read him, but mm-hmm. apparently he's, Bukowski, they've published more, like 20 times more of his poetry since his death than he published when he was alive. Mm. And so what's happened Yikes. with, yeah, what's happened with, uh, it's similar. to burn all my notebooks. Yeah, you probably should. Um, what's happened with. Because probably people, lots of people are <laughs> yeah, going to be a, willing yeah, to. That's a nice set. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'll be going to a nursing home. Making money off of me. Long yeah. after yeah, it's just how much we admire you, Jake. None of us thought to, yeah, we should burn Jake's notebooks. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Including the ones with published material. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, so. A spirit of things and days gone yeah. by. Needle pulling thread. I'm, I'm getting lax on that. You lately. are. You're letting yeah. me do it too much. When, when Brandon eight. actually points at me and t- are all three of us published poets? Because two of us are. Mm-hmm. Oh, with my soul among lions. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not. Ha <laughs> <laughs> <I guess. laughs> <laughs> We got one up on you, man. That's right. <laughs> oh, so it's very. So this is similar to the story that happened with Tolkien after his. Mm-hmm. It's a guy named Walter Hooper. And he was an American who came to England and became friends with Lewis towards the end of his life. And Lewis invited him, asked him to be a secretary. And so Hooper agreed and was his secretary. And this was just like a year before he died. This was right after Joy died. And Hooper, being a good American businessman, took the opportunity to then kind of nose his way into being the trustee. Hopefully Walter Hooper's not listening to this. But he's still alive? Oh, yeah, he's still alive. And I mean... This edition is probably put together by Walter Hooper. Okay. I guarantee you, your editions have something to do with Walter Hooper. Yeah, this preface was written by C.S. Lewis. 
So is this guy gonna is this like gonna be a Boswell kind of? Well, thing? what happened is I bet the introduction to this was sorry I'm getting yeah Walter Hooper March seventh nineteen eighty. He's just, he's Lewis's trustee mm. of his estate now, and he decides what gets published and what doesn't. And so he was responsible for a series called The Dark Tower getting published, not Stephen King's book, but um, these- It is a riff on the um, the poem, right? Yeah. yeah. Child, uh, Child roll into the dark tower. The dark tower came, yeah. And so- Which Stephen King also is, which is why I said that. If it's anyone, just a popular image. Not that image. anyone cares, yeah. Um, the Dark Tower, London, all that sort of stuff. Right. And- um. But Hooper then was involved with his estate, and then there was a controversy that he was actually manipulating and then publishing works that weren't actually written by C.S. Lewis, under C.S. Lewis's name, just so that... He had material. Yeah. So any of the posthumous material, according... So there's one of the famous people that had this up was this girl, um, a scholar named Linskoog, and she first accused him of doing this because a lot of this stuff is like second rate. It doesn't really look like Lewis's writing. Mm Mm-hmm. And so now there's a lot of the stuff that's been published posthumously on Lewis is now suspect. And so you have like the Shakespeare theory that Shakespeare mm. really wasn't the author. Right. It's similar to this, that like a lot of the stuff that's posthumous with Lewis wasn't actually Lewis's work, but might've just been Walter Hooper writing stuff or having someone else ghostwrite this stuff so that he could make some extra cash. Yeah. And so that's, that's the C.S. Lewis hoax. There we go. Kind of fun. 100% worth the wait. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's interesting. Yeah. So anything famous that is, I guess, all the stuff that I've not read. people that, re- no, all and, the famous stuff published when he was alive. Right. So it's not like mere Christianity. So that fits the, fits the theory, actually. Yeah. It fits I mean, the if you it's, wanted it's to, fun. if you wanted to break the theory, what you would need is something truly greater transcendent. After his death. Yeah. Yeah. And so far as I, as far as I know, it hasn't happened and probably won't. It's like all the stuff that. Is it Christopher Tolkien? Mm-hmm. Finds publishes, for, like he'll every publish every napkin that, yeah. yeah, Tolkien scrawled on. Yeah. Uh, he'll just publish that because somebody will buy it. Well, I always, even when I know that the stuff is something that the author wrote, I always get suspicious when a cottage industry springs up around a person and there's just like, like I used to go to Christian bookstores as a kid because we were Christians and we liked books yeah. and there used to be one that my dad would frequent. And there was, I think last time I said a shelf, I didn't mean a shelf, I meant an entire bookshelf full yeah. of, there was like like Luke at Lewis had his own section like here's the thrillers over here here's the romance over here here's the Lewis and he's got just as big of a section as entire genres yes. he yeah. was a genre unto himself yeah Lewis is an industry he is an industry and yeah. so there's just a lot of stuff and some of it's like unfinished essays and things like things that I don't doubt he wrote but they're second rate simply because he probably didn't want them you know he didn't finish they them. weren't finished for a reason yeah and so this There's, is interesting because we talked about this with um, J.K. Rowling. Too. Right. The way in it with her, it was she tried to present herself a certain way. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these other ways that, and so that trying to figure out who the author is as a public figure is often very difficult. Right. And I think that's where a lot of people misunderstand when we talk about the autobiography of the author really matters. Mm-hmm. What matters is like the way the author the morality of the author has coming through in the book. Right. You can figure out who that person is also in the book. Like it's often not, you'd, we could see everything wrong with C.S. Lewis without realizing that he was enchanted by Asgard in the North as a young boy. Right. It's not surprising once you figure that out. It's like, it actually fits what you've, some assumptions you've drawn, but all it is, it's about realizing you're engaging with a person who wrote this book and not feeling like you have to take everything on face value. Yep. And that's the problem. A lot of people have, with reading that way. I don't know why people have a problem reading that way, but mm-hmm. a lot of people do. 
Like it's like there's something sacred about. And so a lot of it then goes to this industry and you see it with Walter Hooper. Mm-hmm. Walter Hooper has tried to create a C.S. Lewis for us. Right. Uh, C.S. Lewis that I think C.S. Lewis himself would have been kind of horrified at. This just armchair, avuncular Don, who then he kind of takes on that character with the Chronicles of Narnia. But I think he would have been a little uncomfortable with the identity he has now. Well, I don't think C.S. Lewis has a warm style, but I don't get the impression that he was a warm man. Yeah. You know, he seems like mm-hmm. a sharp, witty, fun <clears throat> man, maybe. But he he admits it's in several places that he didn't actually like children. Yeah. He just yeah. didn't enjoy being around small children. Um, he, he, his, he, he said that was a defect. Like he said, I wish I did, but I don't. Um, and he admits that he would, his perfect day would be to have nobody around and he just writes and then goes on walks. Yeah. If he had his ideal life, that's what he would be doing. And so, I mean, he knew himself fairly well, but there, uh, C.S. Lewis has now been created for us. Right. Walter Hooper's done it. Certain people who have certain ideas about his philosophies of joy have done it. Mm-hmm. They want Lewis to be a certain thing. And so they just like read one part of him. Right. Or they'll take this image they've created and then try to make all of his works fit into that as well. And it's just... Which the side point to the side point to the side point I'd make there is that often people that are a little bit misanthropic, I think, actually make the best children's authors. People that don't like kids will often make the best children's authors because kids are the kinds of people that feel like they don't have any space and feel like people are always breathing down their neck and feel like they just like to get (coughs) away to read a book. And people who like kids too much feel like adults are stuffy. And C.S. Lewis feels the same way, which makes him the kind of guy that doesn't like kids. But, you know, he. But it also makes him a very charming children's author because exactly. he understands exactly the selfish ways that kids feel. Instead of creepily talking to them about how that he understands the childhood imagination. Yeah, no, no, no. Come over and look at my crashed plane with me, little boy. Yo, what's that, little prince? <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll tell you who else is like that is Roald Dahl. Uh, Roald yeah. Dahl just hated everybody. He was a virulent racist and <laughs> a horrible man and miserable to get along with. Everybody hated Roald Dahl that knew him. And I think it makes him a really charming children's author, actually. He really gets what's hateful about childhood. Um, <laughs> maybe that's the cynic in me, but <laughs> I think there's some truth in that at least. Yeah. Uh, guys, what's that sound? It's the baggage plane. Nope, it's the airplane indicating baggage check. It's the baggage plane. Can we call it the baggage plane? Why not? Oh, We've sure. never identified this airplane that goes over every it's week. the airplane that carries the baggage. The baggage. It's the baggage plane. That's actually how Brandon became ghost Brandon is some baggage dropped out of the plane and hit. hit Brandon and killed him. Uh, but for this plane, what it indicates, folks, is that it's time for baggage check. And this is a Narnia-wide baggage check, C.S. Luge baggage check. Baggage check, of course, the part of the show where we talk about the baggage that we bring. Jake, yo, what baggage? What baggage? What baggage do you bring to C.S. Nice. Lewis? I'm well, the I'm best. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in Mrs. Woodall's third grade class in public school at Hebron Elementary in Evansville, Indiana. Very nice. And I loved it. Third grade, you said? Third grade. I loved it. I was enchanted. I was charmed. It was just a part of our reading curriculum curriculum that year. And Mm -hmm. I convinced my dad to buy me the whole series, which I did, which which he did, rather. She did. (laughs) And uh, I read through them all and uh, loved them and tried to get my dad to read them and made the little box set sit on his nightstand for a really long time until he made it disappear. (laughs) Um, (laughs) your dad's like I'll show you a little magic (laughs) eventually you'll forget about this I never forgot about it dad Yep. I know what you did (laughs) I would always see it sitting and I would always ask and then one day it was gone and I knew that he had just made it disappear and I I literally haven't seen 
that box set since. <laughs> he might <laughs> have went thrown to the it farm. away. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just super excited about it. I loved it. What'd you love about it? Well, I think one of the things that I loved about all literature as a kid was it was an escape. Mm. And it was an especially rich escape for me. It may be my first real experience of of that, being in third grade. I mean, Goosebumps books don't give you the same kind of a, an escape that Narnia does, this whole fantasy world and these wonderful adventures. And um, so I, I think I credit C.S. Lewis with my early love of reading. And just in general? Just in general, yeah. And the first books that I found to be really excellent, dare I even say the word transcendent, I mean, when I read the books, even though I've watched at least one of those stupid Disney movies, I have to admit that some of that movies contaminated some of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but the rest of the books, I still have all of my childhood memories of what Narnia is Mm. and what it looks like and what these places are Um, in a way that very few things I have read have remained sort of undefiled like that. Right. Or are as vibrant and real and alive. So this is a, kind of a really big deal. Very possibly there would be no booking, at least in my future if, or my life, if it hadn't been for the Chronicles of Narnia. So that's that. I didn't know anything else about C.S. Lewis until I became a Christian and read Desiring God. Oh, by the way, before you get there, let me ask, were you uh, aware, were you cognizant of Narnia as allegory, as Christian allegory when you read it as a kid? Do you remember? I think I, yeah, I, I think I was aware of uh, Aslan, Aslan as Jesus, and, Jesus and the whole parable of, the whole allegory of the death and resurrection of Aslan. I think that wasn't lost on me even then, even though I had been in and out of church and I'd been in enough to see and make those connections, yeah. Right. Um, then you read Desiring God. I think that's actually part of why I was so excited about it, was like, I thought my dad would be excited about right. this sort of Christian thingy. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, look at this thing that's actually, you know. That's interesting. I don't know. Yeah, and then I read Desiring God when I was 17 or 18. The first chapter of which contains the the out the analogy from weight of glory about this child by the sea yeah and it has a couple other quotes about just worship and praise in general and Mm -hmm. from various places reflections on the psalms and other other little spots that piper uses that were really helpful i remember buying a bunch of it took me a while to figure out or to like realize or accept that it was the same guy right that's interesting that was the author of these beloved Mm -hmm. childhood that I thought that was super cool. And then I bought a bunch of his philosophical works and never read them <laughs> because I didn't really care. I, I I looked at them and I realized that there wasn't any Bible in them. Yeah. And that he was being really cutesy philosophically and I didn't have any patience for that. So you have, did you ever, have you read Mere Christianity? I've never read Mere Christianity. I've never read, the first thing I bought was a box set. It was like Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain, and mm, probably one, The Four Loves or something. Some of those it may are. have been Screwtape. I did read Screwtape. Screwtape's good. Yeah. Yeah. And it may have been a fourth one, like The Four Loves or something like that. But yeah. So there's that. And then I've reread Narnia a couple of times since then. Read a couple of the books to my kids. I actually haven't read the whole series to my kids. 
what seems to have happened is that I'll read like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe every couple of years, and then like other kids will just start reading the other book. Yeah, I'll just let them go and live in that world on their own. Because you're, I mean, really, they're really on a low level. Yeah, and so that was I mean, surprising how low a level they are when we coming back to them. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But. Yeah, and it, but not unsophisticated in the thought and in some of the sentiments that are in there. No, no, it's well and, done. And yeah, so like Ian, who is going to be in second grade, is reading Prince Caspian right now. Mm-hmm. And he's he's going into second grade and he's reading Prince Caspian. And Ian's bright, but I don't think of Ian as being exceptionally bright for his age. But that's I think that's just, that's the level these books are on. Interesting, yeah. I mean, and Peter's reading, rereading, I think, Don Treader which was my favorite as a kid. But yeah, other baggage is just, I mean, coming to Narnia, I just have, it's all love. Right. I have some C.S. Lewis baggage just around, you know, the kind of things that we've ta- spent time talking about. So I won't believe Long time listeners will know you like the space trilogy. Or yeah. The- <laughs> yeah. Could, it might even be out of this galaxy. Out of this galaxy, perhaps. <laughs> it's just that hideous strength. No. You know, I have to admit, uh, people are going to, crucify me for this one but i have to admit since we've talked about c.s lewis more and more it'd be interesting to go back to that hideous strength i'm afraid that some of the things that felt a little bit off about it might feel that much more more off all the stuff with uh all the erotic stuff at the end is pretty something i don't know the oer set or whatever he calls him yeah doesn't venus come down and she's like yeah those are that's what i'm talking about yeah yeah l deals yeah the l deals that's it yep as Lewis's word for his God, alien angels, people, angel people, yeah. angels, but it's just his way of bringing pagans back in. Uh, any other baggage you'd like to, to, to we, we need to know about going into this for you, Jake? I don't think so. Oh, I'm sure specific things will come up for all of us as we go through the book. Yeah. Brandon, same question. Yeah. You know, well, weird, the weirdest smile on your face. My great grandfather was killed by a bunch of C.S. Lewis books falling off the back of a van. <laughs> so that could explain some of my. <laughs> You just hate. Yeah, <laughs> it turns out yeah. this is all this. this is where we just where this whole podcast to yeah. get revenge. <laughs> they were pushed out by a boy dressed in a cupid outfit. Yep. So. <laughs> How's that for a touch of divine? <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Take me to Psyche. <laughs> Say hello to Psyche for me. <laughs> yeah, a cigar in his mouth. <laughs> Baby from Roger Rabbit. <laughs> All right, enough said. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Brandon, that what, sounds like Nathan? a lie. It is a lie. Tell, I actually tell have, me the truth. People might be surprised to hear my uh, relationship to Lewis. They might. It did not start with Narnia. Uh, my mom read Little House on the Prairie, stuff like that. People know the story. They can go back and listen to our children's books episode, our books that influenced us as children. Mm-hmm. My relation to Lewis really started with a, a friend my best friend when I was right before high school, through high school, his name was Andrew Helms. And we had a relationship very much like C.S. Lewis and that friend of his, Arthur Green. We realized that we both kind of liked the same things. We were mm-hmm. both in the, the same books. And then he introduced me to C.S. Lewis. And so first he introduced me to Chesterton. I read some of Chesterton's fiction. And then I started reading some C.S. Lewis too. So I think the first Lewis I would have actually ever read was probably the Space Trilogy. So I really liked Paralandra at the time. Where I really started to fall in love with Lewis was his literary criticism and his thoughts on books. So I remember when I was in high school reading Preface to Paradise Lost, 
And that's just really helping me understand what I thought about literature and how I thought of it, and even how I thought about literature. Mm. So Jake has a very spaced out look on his face right now. (laughs) (laughs) This is the most boring introduction to C.S. Lewis anybody could ever have. Yeah. 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 I think but, it is pretty boring introduction to see us. <laughs> I'm glad it worked for you, Brandon. It worked. It worked for me. Oh, I, I was what I was remembering was how when I looked at mere Christianity and some of the more philosophical stuff, I thought I actually was thinking about how simplistic and like obvious so much of it was. Yeah, and I mean, just boring. Yeah, that's what was going through my mind when you saw my spaced yeah. outlook. Well, in high school, we read. We had a good teacher, and I had a good teacher in high school. He was. Hang on, folks. I'm gonna have a little love for mere Christianity. When we yeah, get to I'm, I don't have <laughs> hatred towards it. What do you? I'm just. People are so, like, oh, okay, yeah, The thing yeah. that changed my life. They're saying <laughs> oh, it's yes. boring okay. and stupid. I never it was used by God. The in thing that brought my me conversion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know there are people out there, and we love you. And you're not wrong. It probably did do that. I reread Mere Christianity last week and found it helpful. I'm so. sure there are lots of helpful things in it. You're <laughs> <laughs> patting C.S. Lewis on the head here. Good little boy. I'm glad. Usually I'm the condescending jerk in these things. But um. I mean, I read, so I read the Chronicles of Narnia as a youth. And it Friend, what the heck does that mean? What's a youth? <laughs> I read the. I'm trying to remember. You was, put on your, your jodhpurs and well, your, I'm your to, little. Okay, Lord I said that word, Nathan, because I'm trying to remember. Was it before high school or after? And I can't quite remember. It didn't have that big of an impact on me. Mm-hmm. I mean, so in Surprised by Joy, he talks about his, the baptism of his imagination was fantasies. Right. And so for my best friend growing up, he had a lot of the same taste as Lewis. He loved those old North myths. In fact, North myths. North, North, myth. North myths. In fact, now that I'm, now that we're talking about it, I think that he probably was just reading a lot of the books that he saw C.S. Lewis loving. Sure. And so he read these things because he wanted to be taught by Lewis. I think that's what was going on now that we say this, because he did read a lot of the Norse mythology and he read then Fantasties and he's the one who introduced me to that. Comparable to the Fantasties for me would have been War and Peace, mm. right? It did the same thing for me. <laughs> the baptism of my imagination came about I when I was reading War and well, Peace at the age of seven. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Comparable to the Kazoo for me was a cello. Take that out. <laughs> oh, never mind. Whatever. People, people hate me already. Um... <laughs> I never really understood music until I began to understand the intricacies of Bach. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Comparable to the Beach Boys was Handel. <laughs> My old point being that I had a very different taste than what yes. was uh-huh, Yeah, you've noticed. Yes. No, not even higher taste. It's just, just it, wasn't better. For, uh-huh. it wasn't for fantasy inside. Smarter. Right. That sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way of digging myself out of the soul. <laughs> nope, not on this show. <laughs> but one thing that one one thing I loved about Lewis was that he approached literature, his literary criticism. He really loved the books he was talking about, mm-hmm. and he loved the concepts he was talking about when he was talking about books. And I think that he made me want to go into literary studies. He he and Chesterton were two of the people that really had that influence on me. And so, even though I the point I was trying to make was even though I didn't like love the books that Lewis loved. He was still very helpful for me in loving books the right way. Yeah. Does it make sense? That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I came upon his experiment in criticism. And I, so I read a lot. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I was a weird person. But these are the ways that I was introduced to Lewis. I read his Allegory of Love. Mm-hmm. I read Experiment in Criticism. I read 
these books where he prefaced to Paradise Lost, and these to this day are still my favorites. I love these books. Is the discarded image, and they've been helpful for me in just having a clear way of thinking about books and a clear way of writing what you think about books. This has been very helpful there for me. I think I kind of had the same relation Jake has had to his other books, like The Four Loves and Mere Christianity. Even I always thought I really wanted to like books like The Great Divorce. I really did, mm. but I never did. I never could quite like them other than just being kind of curiosities. In a similar way that I never could quite get myself to like Chesterton's fiction. Mm-hmm. I always really wanted to. Have you ever had books like that? Oh, yeah. Where you'll even convince, yep. you'll even tell other people you like them so much that you convince yourself that maybe you do because yep. you feel like maybe there's something wrong with you mm-hmm. in the fact that you don't like these as much as you should. Have you had this? Yeah. And then that's my that was my relation to Lewis's fiction. But when I read the Chronicles of Narnia, finally, as a youth, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I remember loving them. But they weren't such a part of my childhood that they were like fundamental metaphors and images that I have from childhood. Mm. Cornerstones. Um, They're not cornerstones like that for me. Take that for what it's worth. I've read them now to my children. It's very similar to what Jake says. We'll usually read the Chronicles of Narnia. You mean the Lion, the Witch? Lion, the Yeah. (laughs) Good grief, Brandon. (laughs) We'll read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe once every other year. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll leave out the wardrobe. <laughs> I pause I was there. Say, yeah. We're the lion, the witch. <laughs> Sometimes we won't even put in the wardrobe. Um, but we usually won't get much further than that. Maybe mm-hmm. that's just my laziness as an evening reader to my kids. Mm-hmm. Or it could, but whatever. We've only well, ever made, we've only ever made it partway through the Lord of the Rings. Too. It's, well, it's not it's not like a saga. Yeah. In the same, it's not one big epic story told over seven works. It's yeah. seven stories. Boy, did the publishers want you to think it is though? They sure do. But it's seven it's seven stories that all take place in a world, and involve mostly the mm-hmm. same characters most of the time. Yeah. And so, so you, there's some flexibility there. Yeah. Yeah. We. I, I, if my kids, we get done reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and my kids are like, yeah, I'm going to go on and read, like, you know, what next, Dad? Like, that's good enough for me, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, so that's, he's been a great teacher as far as being someone who loves literature and the study of literature. Mm-hmm. And that way, he's been a curiosity when it comes to fiction <laughs> and a not so great influence when it's come to the way that I think as a Christian. He's been a not so big influence yeah. on yeah, okay, right. Like um, the screw tape letters, all those books that a lot of people will lean on is like that was the book that shaped me and made me into the Christian thinker I am today. Those weren't fundamental for me. Right. I would even say orthodoxy was more important to me than those, but even orthodoxy wasn't that important for me. So sorry, classical people. <laughs> but Well, so for us, my baggage, my mom read us Narnia when I was a kid. And she must have done it several times, and it's all mixed up in my brain. I know there was a period where I really resented it because I just didn't want to have anybody read anything out loud to me at all. I just thought that was lame and stupid, and why are you wasting my time, Mom? And we couldn't we be playing video games or watching a movie or something like that. So there was so Narnia kind of has that place. But then I know I also liked it because it stuck with me. I know the stories really well. Going back, I've now reread Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, in preparation for the podcast we're going to do. And it's like, I know every beat. I know all the lines of dialogue. I know exactly what's going to happen. It's, and it's not just like, I know the general outline. It's like, I could tell you, you know, Santa Claus is going to show up here. This is what he's going to say. This is, these are the gifts. This is the thing he's going to, this is a little joke he's going to make about the sewing machine. And then Mrs. Like, I just know the book, especially that one, just cold. Like, I just know it. It's and, a cold book. Too. Yeah. And it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> and 
Folks, okay, I don't think I'm going to be able to give people, I thought I was, but as I think about it, I'm not going to quite be able to give them just the guy that unabashedly loved Mere Christianity and Screwtape and Four Loves and all this stuff. But I think I, I read them all, all the, all the, you know, the ones that Jake got in his four book set, whichever ones it would have been. And I found that those books, I found his, what do you want, his apologetic stuff, his theological stuff, pretty helpful. But I think in thinking about it now, what I really admired and why I kept going back to it uh, was a matter of style, actually. I really, really liked the way that C.S. Lewis wrote, the metaphors that he used, the ways that he expressed himself. It was just a tone and a tenor and a kind of voice that I liked living with. And so I would go back and I would reread Mere Christianity and again and again and again, not because I thought the arguments, as Jake says, are very simplistic. Um, not not because I thought that they, they were so darn wonderful and I just, they, they, they were particular touchstones that I just needed to understand my spiritual journey to read again and again and again. But I just like the way that C.S. Lewis wrote about them. You know, if you want to, me and Brandon, I don't think Jake was there for that one. We taught a class where we went through the weight of glory. Just yeah, as I was an ex- there for that. Yeah, you were there for that. Just as, a, just as an example of a great essay, and just the way that that thing is put yeah. together, <laughs> the way that each argument is built and the way that it builds and the way that yeah. the paragraphs lead into each other. It's mm-hmm. just, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, it was one thing I forgot with my context or mm-hmm. my baggage. Mm-hmm. As an undergrad, when I was trying to learn to write a good essay, because as a high schooler, I had learned to write okay essays. But right. then in, as an undergrad, you start hitting yourself head against the wall of trying to figure out, okay, what is an essay, how to write one? C.S. Lewis was a big, I would keep going back to his essays, trying to figure out how they work, why they work this way, and trying to think like. And like any truly great communicator, he makes it look really easy. He, he does. You never catch him trying. Yep. I think a lot more than Chesterton, who was one of, he, Lewis was self-admittedly a disciple of Chesterton. He loved Chesterton. Yeah. Chesterton is always wheezing up the hill, like, here's another metaphor. Here's another thing. I'm trying so hard. Lewis, you never catch him breaking a sweat. He just like, he's so clean. It can seem a little yeah. coquettish almost, a little yeah. womanly, a little like, dude, strain a little bit. Maybe you'll get somewhere better. But in terms of just clean, nice prose in that sort of style that E.B. White was also a master of, you yep. know, just never catch him trying for straining yep. for an effect. I always put those two together. I do too. Stylists too. I do too. And I think part of it's just that they wrote in the same era and their books tend to be laid out with the same typeface and the same kind of paragraphing and stuff if you get a collection of White or Lewis. But I just love that kind of prose. And so I would go back and reread. I don't know that I was conscious of it exactly, but I, w- I just feasted on the style of yeah, C.S. I Lewis. S- I would say that Lewis and White are maybe my two favorite stylists. Yeah. I mean, they're just... Period. They're wonderful. I think I read, at a certain point, I discovered in my youth, when I was a youth. Um, what is that, Nathan? Clarify. I don't, I don't remember. I <laughs> So I'm just going to use some weird <laughs> term that means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I love you too. Nathan. I love you too. <laughs> I... Read, I discovered Chesterton, and it is. And when you have grown up on Lewis and you discover Chesterton, I would say it's kind of like you've been eating Salisbury steak all your life, and then you discover steak. Like, in terms of how condescending of you, it is kind of condescending, isn't it? But in terms of the, <laughs> we're just all being condescending here. In terms of but. English modernists that argue about scripture or that argue about biblical themes without ever using the Bible. Lewis is like Chesterton light. Yeah, he feels like Diet Chesterton. He just does. And literally, as a human being, he was Chesterton And then everybody writing today is one form or another of C.S. Lewis light. Seriously. 
Does he ever quote the Bible? Lewis? Yeah. No. I don't think Maybe the Beatitudes or something like that. Uh, reflections on the Psalms. Well, yeah. yeah, but then <laughs> he quotes he the Bible when, when he's about to <laughs> tear it apart yeah. in the nastiest way possible. I would say Chesterton was a better thinker, a more interesting thinker. Uh, Chesterton was just better all around. Chesterton's also a lot denser and harder to read and kind of more annoying in, in some ways. Like, if you just want to enjoy style. He requires a lot of you. Yeah, Chester- He requires a lot of trust, actually. Yeah. And, and Lewis doesn't. Lewis, no, Lewis makes it easy for you. You know, one of the beautiful things about Lewis is it's like he's down on his on his knees talking to a child, but it doesn't feel patronizing. Yeah, that's really like it's a difficult thing to do. Well, yeah. well, it's, we've we yeah, it's masterful. We've tried to write pieces for children for Warhorn before, or we've had pieces submitted to us that other people have written for children, and people will adopt that Lewisian tone of "All right, now I'm doing a little side aside." to explain something to you. And it always sounds condescending as heck when anyone does it. I don't know how C.S. Lewis does it. That stuff, I've said this before in the booking, it always really worked for me. It, when I read Narnia, he'd have these little parent, like not just, they were literally parenthetical. They were in parentheses, right? And it'd be like, now you know that Edmund was really doing this because he was a jerk. You know, it's like, I'm just going to well, s- step back and explain something to as you. As everyone knows, you should never shut the... Shut a wardrobe door. Yeah, well, door. I think that it's because he's actually enjoying it and having fun. He's actually taking delight in what he's doing. Yeah. He's not being condescending because he actually enjoys what he's saying. That's that's the other thing. I I talked about this a little bit in that solo episode I did about uh, Robert Mitchell, or uh, not Robert Mitchell, um, Joseph Mitchell. Mitchell and just any time somebody writes about something that you can tell they really enjoy, anytime some, somebody brings enthusiasm to a topic, even if it's the most boring topic, the... The thing that's always fascinating about any New Yorker article is that even if it's about like bugs or entomology or something that I don't care about at all, the author inevitably really cares about it. And that joy can be infectious. Joy, see there? You can be surprised by it. You can. And C.S. Lewis- It's a one thing that's a having. It's a one thing that's a having. But C.S. Lewis did that. It always seemed like he really wanted to communicate these ideas because he cared about them and he was enthusiastic and he enjoyed writing. Well, you have to also- Remember, he had a chair at Oxford. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just like, no, no, <laughs> no. He had a chair. He had, he had no pressure. Right. Yeah. He could do whatever he wanted. He had a position. Nobody was forcing him to do anything. He could have just stayed and been a lecturer and died. And so what he got to do was write about whatever he wanted to. And take the time to perfect it. And take the time. Take as long as he needed to. Because that kind right. of effortless style takes a ton of work to get yes. right. And like, so he could revi- just, revise, revise, revise. And he had revise. no family, right? Except a, his brother. And so he could just go home, and he could go lock himself in his study with his thoughts and his private enjoyments, and just enjoy himself writing about whatever he liked, whatever Sounds he nice. loved, and spend as much time making it as perfect as he wanted to. He had literally nothing outside of him requiring or compelling him to write about anything he didn't want to write or to hit a deadline. Any deadline he had was self-imposed. Mm-hmm. And go. so... Brennan says, must be nice. I'm glad he had it. Good for him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he gave the world some pretty great stuff with, with being able to sit back. The problem is, as we've talked about, that you know some random Christian blogger thinks he can do the same thing if he just dashes off a piece for his random Christian blog. And it's like, no, C.S. Lewis, to do something like what he does takes a lot of work. It just does. 
Yeah, C.S. Lewis would not be a blogger if he were alive today. No, he'd release like one episode or one essay a, a year or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, he those things take forever to put together. The weight of glory. Yeah. The abolition of man. I mean, he. I think he approached his writing the way that <clears throat> New Yorker editors approach submissions, right. which is, you know, I read something once that standard essay for the New Yorker could be an editing anywhere from eight to 15 months. Right. Like that's how long it's going to take before they're happy with it. But C.S. Lewis's writing has that polished gem yeah. feeling. And and that's why every article in the New Yorker feels like a polished gem mm-hmm. that it feels also really simple and effortless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's as clean and pure and easy writing as you could want. But that's why it's because it's had the top, you know, literary expository writing minds in the world working on it for anywhere from half a year to two years plus. Yep. <laughs> Man. Well, and CS Lewis, well, and, for an essay. And, I don't, and you don't get paid for that. The whole point of getting in the New Yorker is so that people will buy your crappy book that you just spent less time working on than your New Yorker essay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and nothing is good. Nothing is as good as it appears in the New Yorker. Well, I like Malcolm Gladwell, but man, you can get you can see see everything that Gladwell says in an essay, and then his book will just be like he expanded the essay a little bit, and it's like, yeah, why am I reading this? I could have just read the essay. Yeah. But all that to say, I really admire Lewis as a stylist. I think he's dangerous <laughs> for someone to try and ape. We've talked about that a million times on the bookening. But if you can learn how to work hard from Lewis and learn what great polishing can achieve, then that's fine. If you think that you can just dash off the same, you can just be C.S. Lewis because you want to be, then you're an idiot. And if you want to imagine that C.S. Lewis dashed everything off, great, fine, good for you. That's He's not... just a colossal, then, then what you've imagined is a colossal genius that is a thousand times farther to reach yeah, and you, you than, were... than the geni- colossal genius we've been describing. You are not a colossal genius. <laughs> Colossal no. geniuses don't listen to podcasts. Why? Why? Why are you wasting? If you're, if you're really a colossal genius, you shouldn't be listening to us. I mean, honestly, you should be locked in a room doing genius things. But you're not, so you're listening to us, and I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Um, <laughs> the world needs uh, uh, fewer colossal geniuses and more people who are just willing to sit down and put some elbow grease into into their work. Yeah. Yeah. And if you have the kind of job where you write and you don't have time to polish it up and make it as good as C.S. Lewis, that's fine. It's okay. We've got those kinds of jobs, you know, and we write things and do podcasts. Or we and, just talk and we or don't just take time to kind of dash things <laughs> off. I mean, <laughs> we're yeah. dashing it all off right now. Uh, yep. We are three colossal geniuses. <laughs> You're in this right. Program. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, not everybody can be us. Yeah, not right. everybody can. I mean, <laughs> case in point, <laughs> they're not on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So all that to say, I, I could pick up Mere Christianity, I could pick up The Abolition of Man, I could pick up The Four Loves right now and just be entertained by the way that he writes, the way that he expresses himself, the metaphors that he chooses, the simplicity and the elegance of his style, I really like. And there are certain ideas that stick with me over the years, and they're simple ones that other people have said before, but maybe nobody said better. You know, just the idea yeah. in Mere Christianity that people resent Christ. They say basically... Christ had divinity, so he was able to resist sin in a way that I couldn't. And C.S. Lewis says, okay, so if you were drowning, would you want the person to make sure they were drowning with you before they could pull you out? Or would you like, you know, actually, it's good to have for your Savior to be stronger than you are. It's okay. (laughs) Just that simple idea is one that I probably think of once a month. 
There's another idea. He talks about how embracing pleasure means dying to pleasure. He talks about how a boy imagines an airplane, imagines how great it would be to be flying an airplane around. Oh, yeah. And I've heard you use this metaphor a lot. Um, yeah. And when you actually become a pilot, you die to the kind of the first wonder of, oh, wouldn't it be great to soar through the sky? You die to that, but you achieve a quieter, more lasting, deeper pleasure, and you gain access to other pleasures. And so the process of maturation is really the process of dying to the things that you thought were so great so that you can find other things that are better. Yeah. And I think about that a lot. You know, I think about that. I thought about that a lot in my, as I've been dating the incandescent Meredith, it's like the heart throbbing feeling that I felt originally when I saw her the first time and when, you know, we were in the first flush of passion. It's like, it would be stupid to try to spend my whole life sustaining that. That feeling no, needs need to die more mature. so that a more mature and more lasting and deeper love can, but also less surface exciting love can take its place. Yep. A statement that I stand by. A good uh. statement. <laughs> and so C.S. Lewis has maybe a dozen things like that that mm -hmm. occur to me regularly. Things in the screw tape letters, things from Narnia, the the bell and charn that Diggory thinks to himself, if I don't ring it, then I'll go through my life thinking what would have happened. I've used that. Actually, I've used that as an excuse to sin a lot of my life. Well, if I don't, just like Diggory, I, I really need to sin here or I'll never know. <laughs> you know. What would have happened? What would have happened? But man, I mean, C.S. Lewis had a an insight into my psychology there. So there's a lot of stuff like that. Uh, I think yep. probably there's if you go through and listen to Bookening, you'll hear either acknowledged or unacknowledged reference points like that. Probably every few episodes, I'll say something that comes from C.S. Lewis. So his thought has been helpful for me. Those little mental handles and metaphors. He's got a lot of them. I'd say probably Chesterton, for my money, has more and better ones in his body of work that probably have done more for me. And I think I probably just trust Chesterton more, even though in some ways he's just as crazy as C.S. Lewis, but I don't know. Nobody asked us to compare C.S. Lewis to Chesterton. Nobody did. Nobody did. Nobody asked us to do any of this. No. Our fans kind of asked us to do C.S. Lewis because they raised the money. By the way, Elphus is coming. Elphus <laughs> is coming. Uh, have not forgotten about Elphus. So we have to name the books we've read? Yes, yes, yes. Jake, you're going to list them off for us? Oh. We're going to list the Narnia book or the C.S. Lewis books and we'll say which ones we've read. All right, here's the nonfiction The Allegory of Love, a Study in Medieval Tradition. Yes. No. No. Rehabilitations and Other Essays. Maybe I've read some of the essays. I don't know. Is this no. the Wikipedia list? Yes. The Personal Heresy, a Controversy. Nope. 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 The Problem of Pain? Yes. Yes. Nope. Think so. Case for Christianity. Believe that these are all mere Christianity. The 1942, those are just the- Is that the- Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So yes. I'm recognizing that. Those yes. are the broadcast talks. Yeah. Okay. So yes, Mere Christianity. Uh, preface to Paradise Lost. Yes. yes. Broadcast talks. That's also- Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity. Yes. The Abolition of Man. Yes. yes. Love it. Recommend it to everyone. Christian Behavior. No. 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 Beyond Personality. No. The Inner Ring. No. 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 Miracles, a yes. preliminary study. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Arthurian Torso. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Essays to Charles Williams, right? On Charles Williams's poetry, yeah. Ah, uh, no, no. Transposition and Other Addresses. <laughs> no, I haven't read that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Mere Christianity, Revised and Amplified. Yep. Yes. Which I think Christian Behavior and that other one were. Yeah, I think uh, so too. Uh, so. W yes. 
three broadcast talks, Christian behavior and beyond personality, actually. That's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. So when we said no to those before. We actually did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama. Yes. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Major British Writers, Volume 1. He had a contribution in there on Edmund Spencer. No, mm. probably not. Maybe. I don't know. Surprised by Joy. Yes. Yep. Reflection on the Psalms. Yes. yes. Four Loves. Yes. yes. Studies in Words. No. No. That's one I haven't read. The World's Last Night and Other Essays. Maybe. I've read a collection of essays that I'm not sure what the name is. An Experiment in Criticism. Yes. yes. Grief Observed. Yes. yes. They Asked for a Paper, Papers and Addresses. No, I don't know. Probably not. Selections from Layman's Brute. No. I'm trying to remember if I, that's the translation I read. I have read Layman's Brute. Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly yes. on Prayer. No. Beyond the Bright Blur. No. That's no. a limited run, 30-page excerpt taken from Letters to Malcolm. Oh, and published well. as a New Year's greeting to friends of the author. And I guess yes. <laughs> the Discarded Image? Yes. Nope. Nope. Studies in Medieval and Renaissance Literature? Yes. No. On Stories and Other Essays on yes, Literature? Yes, that's a good yes, collection. That's a great collection. Spencer's Images of Light? No. no. Letters to an American Lady? No. No. Christian Ooh, Reflections? Wow. Uh, no. No. Selected Literary Essays? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably, yeah. God in the Dock? Yes. No, I don't think so. Undeceptions. No. No. The Weight of Glory and Other Addresses. Yes. Yes. I'm going to write it. Of Other Worlds. Yes. Yes. The Business of Heaven. Daily Readings from C.S. Lewis. Boo. (laughs) Walter Hooper, editor, 1984. (laughs) What do you know about that? Walter, how are you doing, buddy? (laughs) I think everything else is going to be Hooper. Well, can I just say, as far as my baggage goes, we had a lot of those kind of compendiums and ripoffs and redos and collections and i we had something called the narnia companion and uh, you know daily devotionals by c.s lewis i think we had that we had a bunch of books like that and c.s i did learn to hate christian publishing and hagiography of this type through c.s lewis because i grew up with it and it was pretty obviously a cash grab and Mm. even as a kid it was just like i don't know maybe i I, we we were a c.s lewis biography that was I think I would hate now. Maybe I liked it at the time. I don't want to pretend like I was too aware and awesome as a kid. But at some point, I kind of became aware, oh, C.S. Lewis didn't actually authorize this stuff. This is just people that have the rights and want to make money. Um, oh, so yeah, I'm going to skip a whole bunch of that crap and skip over to fiction. There we go. The Pilgrim's Regress. No, yes. don't think so. Nope. I have. This, I guess I should do the Space Trilogy one by one. Out of the Silent Planet, yes. Read the yep. first couple chapters, more like Out of the Boring Planet. Parallandra, yep. yes. Read the first couple chapters, more like that Boring strength. Land of Boredom. Yes. That, yes. that hideous strength, yeah, that's a good one. Screwtape, yes. yes. Great Divorce, yes. yes. We can take all Chronicles of Narnia as a whole, yes. yes. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Till We Have Faces. Yes. yes. The Shoddy Lands. What? The Shoddy Lands, a short story. I think that Published in Fantasy and Science Walter. Fiction, February 1956. Oh, I know. I haven't read that one. Ministering Angels, another short story, published in Fantasy and Science Fiction, January 1958. Nope. Nope. Screwtape proposes a toast. I think that's included in all modern yeah. sc- yes. versions yes. of the Screwtape And it's him riffing on the same ideas from Abolition of Man and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Right? The Dark Tower. No. I think I've read some of that because I think it's in the collection. It's combined with something that I have. Boxin, the imaginary world of the young C.S. Lewis, edited by Refused Walter to read Cooper. it. I read yeah. some of it, yeah. Yeah, you read it, some of it to us last week, yeah. so I guess we've all read a little bit of that. And then there's poetry. Yes. Spirits in Bondage. No. 
Dimer. Yeah. Poems, edited by Walter. Yes. Narrative Poems, edited by Walter Hooper. The Collected Poems of C.S. Lewis, edited by Walter Hooper. C.S. Lewis's Lost Aeneid, Arms in Exile. Uh-huh. Includes uh-huh. the surviving fra- Includes the surviving fragments of Lewis's translation of Virgil's Aeneid. Totally not Presented translated. in parallel with the Latin text and accompanied uh-huh. by synopses of missing sections. Wow, totally not written by Walter Hooper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Collected Poems of C.S. Lewis, A Critical Addiction. A Critical Addiction? <laughs> edition. Oh, Edition. <laughs> yeah, probably what I said or meant to say was Addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, he edited a George MacDonald anthology. Okay. Walter Hooper did? C.S. Lewis did. Mm-hmm. In, in 1947. Oh, okay, fine. George MacDonald, an anthology. Oh, by the way, can we just say, George MacDonald is the worst. I've tried to read George MacDonald. It's <laughs> <Never laughs> we're making people hate us. The Back of the North Wind's not bad. I tried to read The Princess and the Goblin. Based on my love of C.S. Lewis and Narnia and all that, I tried to read George MacDonald so many times as a kid. I could never get through him. Um, <laughs> there you go. Throw tomatoes We hate that. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whippersnappers. All right. Anything else of import there, Jake, or can we move on? Let's move on. All right. I want us, guys, this episode is going to be pretty long, but I want us to predict uh-huh. what we're going to think of the Narnia book. Reading, <laughs> We've all read them before. Uh, me, probably over 20 years ago. Jake, how many years since you last encountered Narnia before this time around? Just a couple or when you were a child or when you were a youth, perhaps? <laughs> so probably sometime in the last five to seven years. Brandon, same question? What? What was the question? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when is the last time you read Narnia? Oh, well, like it's been within the last couple of years. Okay. So you guys may be able to predict this with more accurate accuracy. What are you going to think of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. I mean, I'm. I already can tell you that I know I'm gonna like. Yep, I already read this one in preparation for this, so I can tell you. I think we probably all did. Okay. Yeah. So we won't. We'll skip that. Prince Caspian. Have we all read that? Yeah. Recently. Okay. Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Have you guys read that this time? Not yet. I'm in it. Okay. Is it going to be one of your favorite, Jake? What are you going to think of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader? What I think predict? it might still be one of my favorites by the time I'm done. I predict for me that I am going to like it, even though as a kid, I thought it was the worst one. Didn't like it as a kid because I thought, because it had like, it didn't have a bad guy, basically. It just was like, oh, they're going to a bunch of islands. Who cares? I think all the kind of mythology and stuff will mean more to me now than it did then. I think as a kid, what I loved about it was that it was actually a quest or a voyage. And it was different than just being in the same place. But it was a quest to do something boring. It wasn't a quest to like defeat a villain or It was or not anything. a quest to do something boring. It was a quest out into the unknown waters where they might meet death or anything. Yeah, like I think- they may not find land. I think the not. romance of that will actually be resonant for me this time. It wasn't when I was a dumb kid. They're eventually going to try to reach the ends of the earth. Yeah, I know. I think I'm going to like that. Brandon, what are you going to think I of? think I'm going to like it. You think you're going to like it? All right, I'm glad. Yeah. The Silver Chair- I'm going to like it. I think it's going to be I think it's going to potentially be my favorite. As a kid, I think that was my least favorite and I think that you think I like it. You do you predict it will better, remain yeah. you, you, It's got like elements of horror and stuff like that. Yeah, I think all the creepy snake snake people are bread and butter for one Nathan Alberson. So yeah. I just felt it was really claustrophobic. Yeah, me. but it's cool. I hated that. Yeah. All those people, all those weirdos diving back down into the lower depths of their world. It's even And it also felt like much more of a allegorical reach than even the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe to me. Okay, so Jake, you think it will improve. I think it'll improve. You hated the claustrophobia and the 
allegory, the obvious allegory, I'll say. Yeah. Brandon, what are you going to think about uh, the silver chair? I think I'm going to like it. You're going to like it. Okay, you're just predicting you're going to like it. What do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> what, like, I think I'm going to be thrilled by it. I'm going to find be... it right. out of this galaxy. All right, Brandon will be thrilled by it. Uh, oh, you writing these responses down. Yes, I'm going to put our predictions. I'm going to read these to us. Oh, I think I'm book. going to find the elements <laughs> compelling. <laughs> All right. Wow. <laughs> I find that sentence it's compelling. It's bold prophecy. Yeah. The elements will be compelling. All right, we'll see. We'll see if the elements are compelling or not. Maybe they won't be. All right, the horse and his boy. I remember this was one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say it will remain a top tier narnia book well, i think, I think, it, I think it's gonna be one of my favorites i think it's favorites. top tier i think i i think as a kid i was a little disappointed that we weren't with any of our heroes but man i loved it and then we had the cameo and that was really cool i don't remember the cameo the four shasta that's they right. come to visit. That's right. Matt Damon? It, it all, yeah. And then, <laughs> ben and then we all realize that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are in this. So, and it's during this time. And yeah, wow, crazy. that's really cool. All right. So I'm going to say Jake and me are both predicting this one will be one of our favorites. It's going to be top tier, Nathan. Brennan? Right at the I top. I need you to take a little bit more interest in these predictions. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be number two. This is going to be your second favorite book. Okay. Yeah. There we go. That's what I'm going to start doing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Magician's Nephew. Oh, I yeah. this is my bold prediction. I'm going to say it was my favorite as a kid, and I think it's going to still be my favorite. I think the magician nephew will potentially be my favorite. I don't. It was my favorite as a kid too, Nathan. So, Brandon, do you think it will continue to be well, your not favorite? As a kid, but as, when, as a youth, whenever I read it, yeah, when you were youth. when I read it first, yeah. it was not my favorite, but it was as a youth. As a youth. Oh, wait, Brandon, do you could predict it's going to remain? Yeah, the, it's going to remain my favorite. The favorite. Okay. It's going to be number one, number two, then Silver Chair will be number three. Don Treader will be number four. The, these, this one, whatever it's called. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobes, number five. Prince Caspian's number six. And then the one that we shall not name is number seven. Uh, the Crazy Monkey one. The Crazy Monkey one. Where Aslan leads everybody through a barn door. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> All right, so Jake, your prediction for Magician. Cash devours somebody. Yeah. Jake, unlike most people that I've heard from, you actually didn't like or don't like the magician's nephew, right? Or have some problems with it. This wasn't it. As a kid, I wasn't very taken with it. Uh, there's a lot I liked about it. I liked the pools. I liked the different worlds. I liked the Jadis origin story or whatever. The Jadis origin. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but like, I never, like, I hated Uncle Andrew. I hated the... So you hated all the comedy, basically. <laughs> I'm not trying to say you're a humorless person. I'm just saying. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't just, like that, and I. I'm not sure I was even too big a fan of the creation of Narnia stuff. Okay, so I'm gonna say here's a fair way to put it. I think wasn't taken by the slapstick or the creation story. Brandon's and me are both predicting it will continue to be a favorite. Uh, the best. Yeah, the the the, the favorite. All right. I wanted bold predictions, Nathan. So, I'm giving them to you. And you're saying, Brandon, your prediction for last battle is that it will be the your least favorite. Yeah, it's the last. It's the last battle, and it's the worst. Will be the worst. Jake, your predictions for last battle? Yeah, I don't think we're going to enjoy that. But... Okay, I'm going to take make a bold claim and say we will like it better than... We think. We think. But it will still be one of the worst. <laughs> so it's not that bold of a claim. 
I'm just I'm, I'm doing prices right on you guys and saying you say it'll be the worst. I'm saying maybe it'll be okay. That's it. I've got the predictions. Bold claims. We'll be back next week with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yay! Yay! Looking at is produced by me, executive produced by Jake and me. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to give us money. And I've realized we forgot to do donor shout outs. We'll be sure to do some really good donor shout outs. Episode. Yeah, this is already a really long episode, but we love you donors. We'll be sure to give you a great shout out in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>